If you have a Bible, head on over to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 15 through 17. If you read all the way, if you started at 12 and worked all the way down to 17, that might be helpful. But we're just going to be focusing on Hebrews 12, verses 15 through 17. So head on over there now, and that'll at least get you where you need to be uh, for the rest of uh, the teaching today. So again, Hebrews 12, verses 15 through 17 is what we're going to be looking at. But the context would be 12 all the way through uh, 17. Again, verse 12 through 17. Now listen, uh, have any of you ever had the cereal called uh, Fruit Loops? If you have, it's been around since 1963. And if you know who's on the cover and you know who's the commercial, whoever represents uh, Fruit Loops is some guy named Toucan Sam. His face is plastered everywhere. He goes by the slogan that says this, yet yeah, follow your nose. It always knows. Now, I must confess that I've bitten into the lie of uh, Toucan Sam, and I have followed my nose. And, uh, you know, sometimes three or four bowls later, I find myself asking the question, why did I do that? You ever eaten three bowls of cereals and wonder why you did that? You, you shouldn't ever eat three bowls of cereal, especially if you're older, right? Bad things can, can happen. Yet, my regret in having three bowls of cereal it never seems to lead to repentance. Regret, yes, but never repentance. Because regret, regret, regret and repentance are two completely different things. I'll explain the difference uh, later in my teaching. The Bible says that Esau, and he's going to be the star of the show today, maybe in a bad way, it actually is in a bad way, he, he was also prone to follow his nose, hence we pick up his story in Genesis 25, 29 through 32. I'll read that quickly. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness. Exhausted and hungry, Esau said to Jacob, that's his brother, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. He says, look, I'm, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? Well, that sets up the tone on this Lord's Day because we see in the text here that Esau had some needs. And he wanted those needs, those needs met immediately because his immediate needs would drive the way he behaved. His immediate, need, immediate needs drove his decision-making behavior. It's sad. And our text today is in Hebrews 12, 15 through 17, and the writer to the Hebrews is going to hold up the life of Esau as a warning to us all. His life is a warning to all of us. The writer to the Hebrews is going to encourage all of us not to follow the example of Esau. And Esau also could be likened to the seed that falls onto rocky soil and one that does not finish the race. So my sermon title today is man-eaters, things that will keep you from finishing the race. So now that you've found Hebrews 12, 15 through 17, please stand so that we can read it as a church family. Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. See to it that no one, no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many, 
many become defiled, that no one is, sexu- that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So reads God's holy and inerrant word. The text before you identifies at least four ways that four ways or four things that will keep many will keep many from finishing the race. The first one we see is in verse 15 where we see bitterness. Bitterness will keep us from finishing the race. Sexual immorality will keep us from finishing the race. That's in verse 16. Again in verse 16, an unholy lifestyle will keep us from finishing the race. And then in verse 17, we see that Esau desired the temporal over the internal, and that will certainly keep one from finishing the race. But look at verse 15. The writer says, see to it, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Again, the word that I want to emphasize is see to it. This is a very direct word, a very direct phrase in the text. It means uh, see to it or give it a careful look. Really take heed to this. Give it a careful look. Give it immediate attention and oversight. There are some things we don't need to satisfy immediately, but there are other things we do need to satisfy immediately, and this is one of those in the text on this Lord's day. See to it. See to it that no one fails, verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. In other words, see to it that no one fails. Church, see to it that no one fails. Church, see to it that no one falls short. Church, see to it that that no one fails to finish the race. Church, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You see, the church... And the church family, all of us, the totality of the church, Lakeshore City Church, the global church, we're to finish the race together. We're to finish the race together. You see, healthy churches, if they're healthy, they look after one another. Never perfectly, but that's the idea. And that's what we strive for, that we look after one another. It's not about me. It's not about it's not, about, it's, it's not about me, it's about we. Never about me, it's about we. From the weakest brother to the strongest, so that in all their midst they would all grow in holiness as we help one another. We grow in holiness and we help one another to obtain the grace of God. We are to be in each other's lives is the point. Think of it this way. That the church family, when it's healthy, it is a church that iron sharpens iron. It's one of those, I need you, you need me to keep going. Yes, ultimately we need Christ and Him alone. But He's designed, the Lord has designed the church in such a way that we spur one another on. That's the idea, and the Lord wants us to take heed to this because it's helpful. It helps us to run. It helps us to stay in the race. It helps us to endure. Howard Hendricks said this, Every disciple needs three, three types of relationships in his life. What type of relationships do you need? I think Howard Hendricks does it well. He says, we all need a Paul who can mentor us and challenge us. We all need a Barnabas 
who can come alongside and encourage us. And he, all of us need a Timothy, someone that we can, someone that we could pour our lives into, or vice versa. How true that that is. You know, at a special Olympic some time ago, some mentally handicapped boys were running, and they're running the 220 race, the 220-yard race, and, and one boy, Andrew, seemed to be much faster than all the other boys, and he got himself off to a 50-yard lead, and he was cruising. As he was cruising and coming towards the finish line, he noticed something out of the corner of his eye. He saw his friend fall. You see, Andrew, you know, he saw his friend, and even though everybody in the crowd, those that were close to him were yelling, their finish line's right there. Keep going, keep going, keep going, Andrew, to the finish line. He stopped, and he went back, and he helped his friend to get up, and together they finished in last place. Last place. You see, the world will teach us that because the world itself is also a schoolmaster. We know that the law is a schoolmaster, but the world is also a schoolmaster. But we don't want to sit in its classroom. We don't want to take heed from the world. Because the world will teach us that, that one should win the race of today to win the world's race. But God teaches us to finish the race that he and he alone has given to us. And that as we run this race, we're to help our brothers and sisters to also finish. We're not running the race as individuals. We're not competing against each other because we are a team. I'm not competing against Ron Gallerini. I'm not competing against Bayer, Miss Tony, or Kevin Miller. You see, I have a responsibility to run the race that God has given me, and I'm not competing with my brothers and sisters. I'm helping my brothers and sisters, and they are helping me. We do it together. God teaches us to finish the race to finish the race and to do it, again, do it together because the church is a team. In the, in the church, we're responsible to help one another overcome all of the impediments that seem to be laid out metaphorically on that racetrack that we're, caught, that we're told to run. Uh, we're, we're to overcome the impediments that might cause us to drop out of the race because there's a lot of things that are going to get in our way and some things we'll just pick up and we'll put it to the side. Some things we'll say, look, it's, a, it's, a, it's not fun, but I can deal with that. But then there are other things where we really need the help of our brothers and sisters. We need people to be praying and interceding for us. We need to do life with one another. We need encouragement. You see, we're to do that to help each other so that no one would drop out of the race. Yes, I understand that it's God who draws men unto himself, but the church is called to help one another. But the four man-eaters that we see in the text is we see bitterness. And bitterness is the big one, not like any of the other ones are small, but it's the big one. Did you know that there's 196 Bible verses about bitterness in God's Word? 196. I think it's important. 196. Let's look at 12.15 again, Hebrews 12.15. See to it. We love babies. We love that your baby's crying. That means your baby's alive. Glory to God for life. Hebrews 12, verse 15, see to it that no one fails, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Bitterness will destroy you. 
It will kill you. It will take you out of the race. And that's exactly the design that Satan wants it to have its full effect. Satan desires to have you. He desires to sift you like weed. And one of the ways he can is to have you surrender to bitterness. Bitterness is that feeling of hurt. Bitterness is that feeling of resentment, anger, hate, even revenge that often builds up in our hearts when we've been bitten by certain experiences in life. And we've all been there, every single one of us. Bitterness, it often leads to one who's, who, who often is, is, is a, critiquing all the time. Criticism, cynicism, negativism, they're negative, they're pessimistic. Those are some of the marks of a bitter person. Do you know anyone who's bitter? I bet you're thinking of one right now, aren't you? But could I just ask you maybe not to think of that person, but maybe think of maybe yourself and allow the text to, to land. Maybe it's you. And sometimes we compare ourselves to other people. But how much bitterness is okay? But maybe today you say, no, Pastor, I'm on the other side of that. I was, but not anymore. Well, praise God and glory to God for that. But we all know someone who's bitter. Bitterness, according to the text, literally says, bitterness causes trouble. You can translate that, there's a lack of peace. That's what that means. There's going to be a lack of peace. That's trouble. That's what it depicts. I don't know if you guys know who Franklin Pierce is, but if you know your history, he was the 14th president of the United States. Unfortunately, uh, for Franklin Pierce, him and his wife and his 11-year-old son were traveling via train. And unfortunately, his 11-year-old son was in a train accident with mom and dad, and he was killed, but mom and dad lived. Franklin Pierce could not imagine how could a loving God allow such things to happen to my son. So on the day that President Franklin Pierce was to be sworn in, this happened before he was sworn in, so the time came for, for President you know, Franklin Pierce to be sworn in and he refused to have a Bible that he would swear the oath of office over. He wouldn't do it. Why is that? Because he was bitter. He was angry. And we can have compassion for him. My goodness, he lost his son. But I wonder what that bitterness cost him. Well, if you read history, you know that it cost him a lot. But it was a costly, costly Thing in his life to be bitter. So even presidents of the United States can become bitter. It's a sad thing when one begins to think about why me when Scripture lays out why not you. That's one of the challenges of God's Word when we really understand it. It shouldn't be why me or I can't believe more things haven't happened to me. But none of us are wishing or asking God to place more of a burden on us. Of course not. But it shouldn't be, why me? It should be, why not me? But we need to endure these things together. James Merritt said this, Bitterness is a harbored hurt hidden in the heart. Indeed it is. We become bitter for three reasons. Because of what is said about us. Don't leave me up here. You've been there when people say things about you that are not true, or maybe they are true, or maybe you're misunderstood because of what is said about us, because of what is done to us, and because of what is taken from us. All those three things can lead to bitterness. 
And that's exactly why people do become bitter that are bitter. But God would ask us to consider Jesus, who understood a few things about those who would speak ill of him. Jesus understood, uh, understands when we think about now, the things that are done to us, Jesus understands. Because of the things that are taken from us, Jesus understands. He gets it. He's our great high priest. He, yes, he's our propitiation. Yes, all those things are true. But he understands what it's like to walk amongst us. He was with us. Emmanuel, God with us. But you see, the devil will always help us to justify bitterness. He loves to help you with, with that. To be justified in your bitterness. But let me give you a warning through Scripture. If you do not deal with the root of bitterness, you will soon be dealing with the fruit of bitterness. If you don't deal with the root of bitterness, you will be dealing with the fruit of bitterness. And this fruit is bitter, and it's ugly, and it's gross, and you want nothing to do with it. But that's where it's going. That's where it's going. The bitter root, a bitter root always produces bitter fruit. A bitter root always produces bitter fruit. If you are bitter, then you're headed for destruction. It's just a matter of time. You can fake people out, but it's coming. It's coming. And if you belong to God, He chastens those that He loves. It's coming. It's coming. Bitterness is a destroyer. It destroys our peace. It destroys relationships. Bitterness is an ugly, ugly, awful emotion. It's toxic. It spreads very quickly. And once it's identified in the church, we got to get it out. Once it's identified in our lives personally, saints, us personally, we got to get rid of it. Remember the Holy Spirit. One of the key functions of the Holy Spirit is to convict the believer over their sin. Praise God that we have that. So when bitterness, when we're reminded of the bitterness that's in us, we know it's an ugly emotion. We know that it's going to spread quickly. But once it's identified, we must dig it out by the root or it will spring up, according to the text, and cause trouble. Bitterness splits churches. Bitterness will have people break fellowship because they're bitter. They want their own way. Bitterness destroys families. My point is it destroys all things that are good. The enemy loves bitterness. I read this and thought it wasn't true. I had to read it again because, you know, you can't believe everything on the internet. You know that, right? You do know that, right? Did you know that a rattlesnake can become so angry that it will bite itself? I said, there's no way that that's true. I've never heard of such a thing. But a, bite, a, a rattlesnake can and will bite itself. It will pump venom into itself or whatever it is that it's going to spew. And he will literally die. I mean, what a picture of hate and resentment. I never knew. Bitterness will destroy your worship. Bitterness will defile your witness. 
It'll defile your witness. Bitterness will taint your testimony. Bitterness defiles everything. Everything that it touches. Those who are infected by the bitterness poison, you feel it. It doesn't just bite you, it bites others. Genuine believers or genuine runners of this race are infected by the defiled. Bitterness can keep all of us from finishing the race. It is a man-eater. What about sexual immorality? Verse 16. Another man-eater. That no one is sexually immoral. No one is to be sexually immoral. This word immoral refers to any kind of sexual activity. In the Greek, it says pornos. That's where we get our word pornography. Immoral is pornography. It's, it's talking about someone who is sexual sin here. And sexual sin is a powerful tool Satan uses. It's a powerful source of temptation in the church, outside of the church. So if a heart is not guarded against sexual sin, if there's little to no accountability in your life, just know this, sexual sin is lurking. It's coming for you. It's going to come and take you out. It's coming. Sexual sin is always on the prowl. It's always looking for someone to, to devour. It's looking for anything and anyone it could take down, and it will do so. We're playing with fire. One pastor said, a woman, a woman never wrote these words. Thou shalt not commit adultery. God wrote that. You sin first and foremost against God. Yes, if we're married and, or if we're in relation, we sin against that person. But first and foremost, we sin against God. What did David say? Against you and you alone I have sinned. I have done this wicked thing. And he repented of his sin. First to God. Yes, he, he crushed a lot of people by his behavior. But it starts with God. It ends with God. The victory, the, uh, the victory of repentance is through God. Sexual, immoral people have no commitment to, to purity. We live in a time where the world minimizes sin, sexual sin. The world minimizes sexual sin. However, the Bible maximizes this type of sin with severity with many warnings. And we see another one in the text today. So why is that? Why is it that the Bible maximizes sexual sin with severity? Well, we need to get that answer from God's Word. And another verse that would support this across reference would be 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Allow me to read it to you. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your 
body, that the body is meant to glorify God. Sexual immorality not only sins against God, it also defiles our own bodies, which are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Sexual immorality always teases you with the offer that you don't want. Listen, here's the offer. Enjoy now, pay later. Enjoy now, pay later. But sexual sin has a hook in it. Sexual sin has a hook in it. You don't always see it, but trust me when I tell you, you will feel it. It's coming. It is absolutely the bait of Satan. He wants to kill you. He wants to take you out. He wants to dismantle your witness. The third man-eater we see in the text is an unholy lifestyle. We see that in verse 16. Again, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. Now here's the example, the bad example, unholy, like Esau. Like Esau again. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Esau, as it says in the text, who sold his birthright for a single, single meal. Don't be holy like Esau. So what kind of unholy was Esau? What sin did Esau commit? Well, for starters, he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. He sold his birthright for soup. Esau was more interested in satisfying his wants, his desires, and of course, he wanted those desires to be satisfied immediately immediately not god's timetable his timetable esau placed absolutely unequivocally no value on god esau was a lost man an unconverted man he loved the world more than he loved god esau valued what was in front of him he was all about satisfaction. He was all about gratification. We learned in prior weeks that, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We learned that, didn't we? That's the def, one of the definitions of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Bottom line to all this with Esau, he had faith and what he could see. Esau had faith in what he could see. If he could not see it, he didn't want it, or figured it wasn't worth it. Esau had no saving faith. He was a man of the world. And men of the world need to satisfy their desires immediately. This behavior is a man-eater. It's an unholy lifestyle that places self above all else. This person will never finish the race because they were never in the race to begin with. They don't finish because they were never in the race to begin with. The fourth thing we see in the text that's a man-eater is desiring the temporal over the eternal. Verse 17, when one would desire the temporal over the eternal. Temporal meaning things that are going to fade away. Eternal would be the things of God. Verse 17 clarifies that Esau 
He's a man that places a higher value on temporary things rather than the eternal, which will last forever. And this is our final man-eater. Esau is likened to Judas. He's a type of Judas who sold... Judas is one known for what? He sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He loved money more than he loved the Master. He sold out Jesus. Esau, he loved a lot of things. Esau loved to be blessed. Esau loved the world. But again, he did not love God. Look at verse 17. For you know, for you know that afterward, afterward, when he, when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And no, this does not mean that you can lose your salvation. No, this does not mean that if you cry out to God for repentance, it doesn't mean he's not going to hear you and respond to you. That's not what this is saying. Remember, he was never saved to begin with, but let me break that down. I think Steve Cole does a good job uh, giving insight to this text. Allow me to read some of his notes. Starting with, for, for you know that afterwards, that's what we see at the beginning of verse 17, for you know that afterwards. He says in this commentary, he says, seeing these words should send shivers down every spine. Some decisions have irrevocable consequences that God will indeed forgive all of our sins if we truly but you cannot undo some consequences from former sins. You see, what happens when we, for example, when, we're, when the gospel's going out and someone hears the gospel and rejects it over and over and over again, they have a seared conscience. They might be with knowledge, conscience, with knowledge, that's what that means, conscience, but their conscience has been seared. They no longer can even hear. It's a dangerous thing to sit under the Word of God and not respond to it. So God will forgive our sins if we truly repent, but you cannot undo some consequences from former sins. Some sins have a searing effect on our consciences. When Esau lost the blessing at first, the text says he felt bad. There was regret. He felt bad. He felt regret. He felt bad. As a matter of fact, he wept about it. But Esau got over it. He moved on in life, and he, if you know the history of Esau, he became a successful man. In later years, he probably thought at the time, I thought that losing the blessing was a tragedy. But I've recovered. Life is good now. Because that's the way it always goes down. Crocodile tears now. Regret now, but true repentance. How do we know? How do we know? You see, we'll talk about that in a second because there needs to be evidence of our salvation. There needs to be fruit in our lives. But the text also says when he desired 
to inherit the blessing, verse 17, when he desired to inherit the blessing. Again, this is referring to blessing, not, N-O-T, to repentance. Esau is not seeking repentance, okay? He's not seeking repentance with tears. He was seeking the blessing with tears. Big distinction, big difference, major contrast. In other words, he wasn't sorry about his sin of despising God. He wasn't sorry about that. He was sorry that he didn't get the blessing. That's why he's trying. In other words, he could care less about seeking God for the joy of knowing God. He only wanted what God could give him. He only wanted something that would make this life more enjoyable. That is a worldly pursuit. That is the race he wanted to run. We're all running races, but we're running them for different causes. If there was a number on his back, what do you think it would be? Probably number one, because he thought it was number one. And it wouldn't be finished the race. It'd be run now. You may not have tomorrow. Run now. Run like there is no tomorrow. Get it now. Immediate. He was sorry that he didn't get the blessing. He wanted his life to be more enjoyable. There are many today who are Christians for the benefits. The benefits are starting to go away a little bit now. It's not as easy to be a Christian. I do not think that we're under persecution like you know, we, we know about some of our brothers and sisters who serve in international ministries. It's not like that. But it's not as easy as it used to be. So the benefits of being a Christian are starting to dissipate. But some come to Christ for what they think are the benefits, maybe a happy marriage, a, a better family life, good health, a comfortable lifestyle. They'll get to pay their, they pay their dues to the church and think these things are going to be taken care of. But if life becomes difficult, and I've seen it over and over and over and over again in our church, if life becomes difficult, if there's severe trials, they'll start shopping elsewhere for whatever works. Their allegiance is not to God. Their allegiance is to themselves. If they can use God to get what they want, they'll do it. But if God isn't working in a way they want God to work, they just move on. That's apostasy. That person is Esau. That's Esau. They desire the blessing, but they really aren't interested in the joy of knowing the Savior. That's not their interest. How sad, pathetic, that one would be willing to trade their life away for a bowl of soup. That one would be willing to trade their life away for 30 pieces of silver. Just think about this. Judas got the silver. And he took, after he got everything that he thought he wanted, he chucked the silver. And he hung himself. It never gave him what he wanted. God gives us dirt for our diamonds. He, for our sin, we receive salvation. It's a great trade. So why in the world would any of us, pastor included, why in the world would any of us 
hang on to those things that are killing us or keeping us from running. Why in the world would we hold on to any of those things? Killing us is the first thing I want you to think about for the unbeliever. But what are things that we're holding on to that are impeding our progress and our race? Don't be like Esau is the warning of the text. The warning of the text is simply this. Don't be like Esau who, come up, who came up short of the grace of God. That's the main point. Don't be like Esau who came up short of the grace of God. To be short of the grace of God is to be short of genuine conversion. It's to be almost saved. And to be almost saved is entirely lost. To be undecided is to be decided. Scripture would draw us to the cross because it always does. If you don't know Christ, then come all the way to faith in Jesus. Don't just put your toes in the water as so many do. Come all the way to Christ. Jump in. Beloved, this Scripture gives us a very kind and gracious warning. To be warned this side of eternity is all but God's, it's all God's grace. So we have to take heed to this warning, all of us, pastor included, take heed to this warning that was given to us. So I would just ask all of us, every person in the room right now, will you examine your life right now through the lens of Scripture? Would you do that? Would you ask yourself some questions is there any root of bitterness in my life right now? How about this question? Is there any sexual immorality in your life right now? How about this question? Are there decisions that you make on a consistent, consistent way? Is there a pattern in your life of making decisions in your life where you do you, you, you want a response that will give you immediate gratification. Is that you? Maybe today you are one that has an intellectual understanding of Jesus, an intellectual understanding of the Lord. Esau had an, inter, he had an intellectual understanding of God. But maybe today you have an intellectual understanding of Jesus. You have an intellectual understanding of the price that was paid for you for your sins. However, if you were being honest before the Lord, if you were being honest, the intellectual understanding that you have has never changed your heart. It has never changed you or led you to obey Christ. If that's you, you are a false convert, and I'm warning you to repent and trust Jesus. If that's the pattern of your life, all Christians sin, all Christians uh, step in it and go through things. There are prodigals, but this is a warning. Steve Lawson said this. He said, it's not the obedience that earns salvation. It is the obedience that validates the genuineness of your salvation. So the question again is, has your life been transformed by God? If you're not sure, then consider that through the power of the Holy Spirit. May you consider that and wrestle with that. Are you one who 
in your own life has sold your life metaphorically for a bowl of stew. If that is you, I want to give you hope. As your pastor, I want to encourage you and I want to give you hope. One of the most encouraging texts in all the Bible is Luke 19.10, that Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. But before we get to that famous text, there's more written in Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. I'd like to read it for you quickly. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see, see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up the sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Translation, hey, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. Today I must dine with you. Jesus pursuing us. Beloved, I believe today Jesus is inviting many to and many to dine with the Savior. I believe that through this message, through the proclamation of the gospel, through the written word of Jesus Christ, through his word, I believe this. Jesus is calling many out today. So I would ask for the power of the Holy Spirit, would you, if you hear his voice today, would you be, listen and respond to him. Let him draw you unto himself. If that happens, you will dine with the Savior tonight. The word teaches us that he will spread the banquet table before you and you will never have had more satisfaction than having a relationship, a right relationship with him. Do not come short of the grace of God. Don't play church. Don't fall short. If you are lost, if you know you're not a Christian, then come clean. Stop pretending. Today, come clean. Fall upon Christ while there's still time. Today, you may be lost, but you can leave this place glory bound. You do not need to earn salvation. You do not need to earn salvation. You need to receive it as the gift that has been prepaid at Calvary's cross. Yes, there are many man-eaters. More than what I could cover. But there is also the God-man, the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sins of the world, John 1.29. Mark 1.15 speaks about our Lord and Savior. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Anyone that does that, he will receive. He is Jesus, He is the Son, He's endured to the end, He's finished the job, and why did He do it? Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 2. Be encouraged by the Word of God. If you're in Christ, glory to God. Praise the Lord. Praise God for what he's done. If you're not, fall upon Christ. Cry out to him while there's still time. He is who he says that he is. He's the reason why we exist. 
what a desire, what a joy it is for those of you in Christ to know that your main purpose is to bring glory to God. Let us do it well. Let us do it together. We're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have more power than what we realize. Amen? Would you please stand and allow your pastor to pray for you? Father God, I thank you for this congregation. They are so sweet. And they've been so kind to me and the elders over these last several months. Lord, I thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that you would continue, Lord, to strengthen each and every one of us, God. For those who, that, that, that know you, we thank you for your grace that you've extended to us, your mercy. We pray, Lord, for those that do not know you in this house, God, that today would be the day of salvation, that you, God, would draw men and women unto yourself for your glory. We love you in this house, and we thank you for the, great, the greatest gift we could ever, that, that's the greatest gift of salvation. So thank you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.